Our confessional lesson for this evening is taken from the Belgic Confession, Article 13. And I think that it says 959 there, but I think it is on 859. Okay. Article 13 on the doctrine of God's providence. We believe that this good God, after he created all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will, in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. And yet God is not the author of, nor can he be charged with, the sin that occurs For his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he arranges and does his work very well and justly, even when the devils and wicked men act unjustly. We do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what he does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend. But in all humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us being content to be Christ's disciples so as to learn only what he shows us in his word without going beyond those limits. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father. He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures under his control so that not one of the hairs on our heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought we rest, knowing that he holds in check the devils and all our enemies, who cannot hurt us without his permission and will. For this reason we reject the damnable error of the Epicureans, who say that God involves himself in nothing and leaves everything to chance. Well, a while ago now, if you remember, I announced my intention to lead you in a study of the Belgic Confession, which I want to make good this evening. So let's continue by looking more closely at Article 13. Last time we looked at Article 12 on the creation of all things, and I mention it because in Christian orthodoxy, Creation and providence belong together. They're inseparably linked. Creation, the doctrine of creation affirms that God the Father created all things out of nothing by his word, that is, by his Son. What does it mean to talk about God's providence? What does it mean to say that they're inseparably linked, creation and providence? Because it's not as if God creates and leaves what he creates to itself. Having created the universe, God governs it, always working within it to preserve all things and to arrange them as he sees fit. For this reason, Zachary Ursinus, the principal author of the Heidelberg Catechism, writes concerning providence that we are not to imagine God creates, creating the universe as a shipbuilder building a ship. 
As soon as the builder of the ship completes his work, he turns his ship over to a captain who pilots it according to his will. This image of a shipbuilder's relation to a ship suggests a doctrine that gained popularity during the Enlightenment, during the 18th century, uh, a doctrine that we know as deism. According to deism, God creates the universe, sets it in motion, but then leaves it on its own to spin and wind down as it will without his further intervention. This is decidedly not the position of the Belgian Confession. God does not abandon the things he created to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will, as we read. Modern science teaches us to see the universe as mechanical, governed by physical laws. To be sure, the things of the natural world do conform to physical laws, which make them mathematically representable, testable, and predictable. But science cannot thereby conclude that the universe is impersonal. That is a leap from the physical to the metaphysical, which is a category mistake. It's not within the scope of science to make these kinds of pronouncements. The Reformed doctrine of providence affirms that things have been endowed with their own properties and causes. Providence cannot be seen to be opposed to science, but a thing cannot exercise its own power unless it is upheld and directed by God's hand. The God who made the world through the Son, who also upholds all things by the word of his power, as we read in Hebrews 1. Indeed, what we designate as natural occurrences are directed and governed by God's providence, including the south wind that brought the quail to the children of Israel in the wilderness, the storm for Jonah, the barrenness and fertility for Rebekah and Rachel, and the provision of our daily bread. All things are directed and governed by a power and a goodness that are personal because they are the power and goodness of our Heavenly Father. Interestingly, Calvin admonishes us always to give praise to God for the things that he provides for us out of his fatherly care, even when they come to us through the medium through, through the medium of something else. For example, when someone helps us, we ought to regard the help rendered to us by a human hand as divine deliverance in the conviction that God is the author of all good as well as its first cause regardless of the secondary causes, like the helpful hand that he may use. What then about human agents? Can we regard them as governed by God's providence? In every action of a human agent, God also is at work, even to the minutest detail of our lives, without violating our freedom, so that our responsibility for our actions is not overridden. Calvin again writes, although men like 
brute beasts confined by no chains rush at random here and there. Yet God, by his secret bridle, so holds and governs them that they cannot move even one of their fingers without accomplishing the work of God much more than their own. But God cannot be charged with the sin that men commit. God uses their evil to punish human sin, and he also uses it as an instrument of goodness. The classic example here is Joseph, Joseph's brothers, whose wrongdoing God used for good. The Belgic Confession is right in asserting that this is an article of faith because it does not always appear to us that all things are ordered and governed by a will that is good and powerful and wise. Evil persists in the world. Events seem to us to escape from God's control and cause chaos and pain in the world and in our lives. There is so much confusion in the world. But the Belgic Confession, I think, helpfully teaches that God has not given our finite minds the capacity to see how, in fact, it is the case that God can bend all events, both good and bad, in a way that serves his good and perfect will. For this reason, the Belgic Confession warns us to curb our speculative impulse For God's ways in the world are beyond our ability to comprehend. We have to trust his goodness and adore his just judgments, which are hidden from us. And so we accept on the basis of faith that God directs all things, both good and evil, to an end that he determines, an end that will serve his glory and the ultimate good of his people. For our part, we should be content to be Christ's disciples and learn only what he reveals in his word without going beyond those limits. The doctrine of providence has pastoral pastoral value, right? It says that it's an unspeakable source of comfort for the believer. The power that creates and governs all things is personal. That is, it is fatherly. We can trust our Heavenly Father to watch over us with fatherly care. Nothing that concerns us escapes his notice. The power by which the planets are kept in operation and the seasons change is the same power as that by which he keeps under his care the least of his creatures. To cite Calvin again, it is certain that not one drop of rain falls without God's sure command. This statement seems to draw inspiration from the passage that serves as a classical text for God's providence. We refer here to Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 10, 29, and 30, and you see that the Belgic Confession alludes to it. Now I'll read it here. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. We need not fear that anything has power to harm us, power independent from God's power. 
There is no power or action or movement in creatures that is not governed by God's plan. And those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, can be assured that God works all things together for their good. On that note, let's continue in our worship by responding joyfully, um, singing of number 369, Worship Christ, the Risen King. Our scripture reading for this evening is found in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 24, and I'll be reading verses 13 through 35. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed in reason, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And so they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as a woman had said. But him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. And now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us. And so they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them saying, The Lord is risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. Thus far ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Are you getting it? 
I have several teachers in the congregation that I serve in Ionia. And some of you may know that I spent more time behind the lectern in the classroom than I have spent behind the pulpit in the church sanctuary. It's safe to say that we teachers know how challenging it is to teach. We, we carefully prepare a lesson or a lecture. We rehearse it several times only to see on the day that we deliver it the look of bewilderment in our students' eyes that betrays their total lack of comprehension. So we try again. We brainstorm creative ways to clarify the content for them and, 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 and we try to impress on them what they absolutely need to learn from us, to, to, to master the unit that we're trying to teach them. We know that to succeed here is one of the greatest rewards in teaching. Conversely, to fail time after time is one of the greatest frustrations. In our scripture reading for this evening, it's late afternoon on Easter Sunday, and these two disciples are walking together. Let's recall that at its root, the word disciple literally means learner. That is to say, they are students. And as these students go on, they're, they're trying to make sense together of all that has happened, and, and they can't. It's to no avail. No wonder they're sad. They're convinced that what they left behind them in Jerusalem is an event that ended disastrously. Before then, they were full of anticipation, convinced that in those days preceding the crucifixion of Jesus, there would be something tremendous. They believed that they were going to see the salvation of God. In this connection, there comes to mind the aged Simeon, who encountered the infant Jesus and declared, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Those hopes were shared by the remnant of the faithful in Israel. Jesus, to whom these two disciples entrusted their lives, seemed to have arrived at this last and decisive battle in Jerusalem. After this long period of preparation, he now was going to manifest his saving power. This is what they expected, but this was not to be. The two disciples entertained a hope that is now crumbling. The cross erected on Calvary stood as a sign of defeat that they had not foreseen. How could this have happened? Here was the Redeemer of Israel in whom the fulfillment of all God's promises was embodied in his presence. It's almost as if they held it in their very hands. And then it was gone, destroyed, and not just by anyone, and not by an unfortunate accident, but by the chief priests and leaders of their own people. 
How could it be that their own high priest could get the law of God so wrong that they condemned to death a man who obviously came from God? How could anyone even begin to comprehend this perversion of justice, this willful blindness? The two disciples are bewildered. Their foundations have been shaken. Nothing makes sense. And so they leave Jerusalem to go elsewhere to a village called Emmaus. But what is Emmaus? Emmaus is not a destination. In fact, one commentator said that it's a retreat. It doesn't represent a place to go. It represents a place to withdraw to. But since Jerusalem evidently failed to realize its destiny, there is nowhere else to go. And so the two walk together in sadness, directionless, without a destination. Have you noticed, both in your life and in the life of others, that spiritual transformation is often preceded by pain and confusion? We say of someone that he's come to an end of himself. And it seems that only then is he receptive to an intervention open to an encounter, in this case, with the risen Christ. So the two disciples are in this state of mind on the road when a stranger appears to them. His presence there seems almost fortuitous. It seems as if it's one of those chance meetings that that happened to us in life. But the stranger approaches them. He's eager to walk alongside them and to join in their conversation. The two disciples do not recognize their fellow travelers. Traveler, his true identity is hidden from their eyes. And then he asks them a question. What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And we're not inclined to see the questions addressed to people in the Bible, both in the Old and New Testaments, whether by God or by Jesus, as questions in the strict sense of the word. When we ask a question, it's for the purpose of soliciting information from them, information that we don't currently possess, but that certainly cannot be the case with the divine. For example, when God asked Cain, where is your brother Abel? It's not because he's seeking information about Abel's whereabouts. He knows exactly where Abel is. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So what then is the point of asking this question? You know, there's a mystery here. On the one hand, God knows the inmost secrets of the heart. On the other, God wants a genuine dialogue partner. That's part of what it means to be made in God's image, according to some theologians. But there can be no dialogue when one knows in advance all that the other is going to think and to say. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard spoke of this mystery in terms of a distinction between two modes of creation. There's a way that God creates, and then there's a way that we create. Whatever we create, always remains dependent on us. For example, when a computer programmer writes a code, it remains dependent on his instructions. That is, 
the code cannot act independently of its creator. Now, I say this even now with the emergence of AI or chat GPT, but I think that the claims that these theorists are making for AI are dubious. In his lecture, Anti-Humanism and the Post-Political Condition, Matthew Crawford tells of what happened when one of Google's self-driving cars found itself at a four-way stop. Being a robot, the car was unable to communicate with the other drivers. Think about all that goes into negotiating a four-way stop. You have eye contact. You have movements of the car that indicate a willingness to stay or to go. All this requires social intelligence. But all this was invisible to the self-driving car. Not knowing what to do, the car froze and then shut, shut down. But the most telling part of this incident is what happened afterwards. When the engineer was asked if he had learned anything from the incident, he said that human beings have to stop being so idiotic. Obviously, the irony was lost on him. Unlike man, God can and does create a being that is genuinely free relative to him, even though we cannot conceive this. But that God can do this, according to Kierkegaard, is a demonstration of his omnipotence. In the relative freedom, there's a space for dialogue between creator and creature. There is an opening for an encounter. So this is not what Jesus is doing when he's asking these two disciples this question. He's not, he's not trying to solicit information from them. Jesus asks and then listens. He's not intrusive. He's not imposing himself on them. He knows exactly the reason for the disappointment of these two disciples. But he wants to draw it out of them. He wants them to narrate their experience. He wants them to find words for it. This is good pedagogy too, right? I mean, when you have students... You want them to spell out what exactly you're trying to teach them. They have it. They can give the story. But then they need Jesus to open up the scriptures for them so that they can get the, the full picture. Also think about this in terms of psychology. Psychologists tell us that... Um, that unarticulated experience, experience leaves it emotionally unresolved. Finding language that gives expression to unresolved emotion is important. An important role of the psychologist is to help the patient in finding words to describe the emotion. Naming it helps to assign a place so that it's not so scary, right, so that it doesn't break through its boundaries and cause chaos in, in the inner life. Interestingly, one theologian insists that what Jesus is doing here is administering to these two disciples a therapy of hope. Out of this comes a confession. We had hoped, we had hoped, but... This is a constant refrain in human experience. How many disappointments, how many 
failures, how many defeats are there in the life of each man and each woman? Each of us can relate to these two disciples. We can all think of those hopes that we once entertained. Indeed, one or more of those most cherished may at one time seem to have been within reach, but then ultimately we were disappointed and happiness once more proved elusive. Now, I always remember this conversation that I had with this woman um, a while ago now, and she confided to me that she no longer hopes. She said, when I refuse to entertain hope, I spare myself the pain of disappointment. To refuse to entertain hope means to be pleasantly surprised if something good does come along, which then would always be unexpected. I mean, there are probably, there are many, many like her. This is their attitude towards life. This is, this is a stance that they adopt towards life. They're jaded. They're cynical. And they need to know that, that Jesus is willing to walk alongside them. He walks alongside people who are disappointed and discouraged, who walk with their heads hanging low. And walking with them, he's able to restore hope and, and courage to them. You see that Jesus asked the disciples only two questions. When we're bewildered, we want clarity. We, want, we don't want questions, we want answers. We want explanations that help us grasp that which we need to make sense of, right? But that doesn't always seem to be how God works God's pedagogy is different. Seldom does he solve our difficulties for us. Rather, he gives us wisdom so that we can discern the right questions and then discover the way ourselves. It's been pointed out that Jesus does not appear to these two disciples in the splendor of his resurrection glory, thereby in the blink of an eye forever giving them certainty. Skeptics often ask why God, if he exists, doesn't make his existence public and dispel all doubts. Why not make a public display, make a declaration that cannot be contradicted? Jesus is not like the Hindu god Krishna who appears with countless arms, stomachs, faces, and eyes to convince the prince, Aruna, that he should do his duty and fight against the relatives fight against his relatives for his kingdom. Rather, Jesus wants the two disciples to see the truth of the events for themselves. That's why he first prompts them to bring the events to language, as we have already mentioned. This is how we work through what is unresolved in us. After they give an ordered account of the events in answer to Jesus' questions, He helps them locate the suffering of the Messiah in God's plan of salvation. And he does this by opening up the scriptures to them. He shows them that the suffering of Israel's Messiah does not nullify that plan. On the contrary, it was central to that plan. When God opens our eyes to the truth we see how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. 
As St. Augustine famously said in the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed. In the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. There's a shift here. The narrative takes a turn. When we're sad and dejected as these two disciples were, we're seldom in the mood to entertain company, not to mention set a place at our table for them. In our grief, we often seek solitude. We want to be alone. But it's clear that these two disciples now feel comfortable in the presence of this stranger. Indeed, they feel positively drawn to them. He cared for them. He walked alongside them when they were feeling sad and dejected. And it's natural for us to want to be near to those who, who care for us. And so that, that in part explains why they invite the stranger to, to come and stay with them. Stay with us because it is almost evening. The day is now nearly over. You know that, that, that famous hymn, Abide With Me, is, is, um, is drawn is inspired by this story, the story about the two, two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And this is what the disciple in all times and at all places wants. Lord, it is evening time. Please stay with me. And this becomes vital, especially during those, those long and painful hours, those, those dark hours, which can seem endless. It's interesting that the moment of recognition is deferred to the very end in this drama when Jesus is at table with them. So what's going on here? Note the deliberate language used here. Jesus took, blessed, broke, and gave bread to them. The Anglican liturgical scholar Gregory Dix calls these the four Eucharistic words. That is to say, that is the language of the Last Supper. There Jesus connected with the bread and the cup, the suffering that he was about to undergo for us and for our salvation. And there it must have come together for the disciples, the Messiah who suffers Jesus voluntarily undergoes suffering because God, what God wants is for his people to be reconciled to him, to offer him true worship, to eat with him, to be his companions. That's something truly remarkable. The Son of God wants us to be his companions. The Lord's Supper models this companionship. Eating at table with someone is a very intimate act. The risen Christ is present with us too in our Lord's Supper celebrations as presider and host. We're used to seeing how the very life and death of Jesus is symbolized in the series of gestures that the minister repeats in obedience to the command of Jesus at the Last Supper, do this. But in the Lord's Supper, we should also remember that our faith is renewed and strengthened, enabling us to go back out into the world after worship to love and serve the Lord. Liturgical scholar Howard Hageman said that the prayers of the people or the prayers of intercession should follow the celebration of the Lord's Supper in worship because it models liturgically the strength that we receive from the Lord's Supper to do mission in a hurting world. 
Is it not the case then that nourished by word and sacrament, Christ prepares us to walk alongside those who are on the road to Emmaus? So how many of our contemporaries are walking aimless, directionless lives without a destination? And here we have to look at a perplexing situation that faces us today. Many people have concluded that the church has no longer anything meaningful for them, and so they don't go. Now, there are myriad reasons. Perhaps the church appears to them too weak, too compromised by scandal, too irrelevant to their concerns, too cold, too morally rigid, too divisive, too hypocritical. Maybe they see the church as a relic of the past, too out of touch with the issues of the time. Perhaps they see the church as fine for children, thinking that the church speaks to people in their infancy, but once they come of age, it has nothing more to say to them. Whatever the reason, the fact remains that like these two disciples, they've left, in a figurative sense, Jerusalem behind, and they've set out in another direction perhaps disappointed. But where does this road lead? Will it bring them to a place that will only lead them further astray? Or will it bring them to a place of only partial satisfaction that will ultimately not fulfill them, only bringing further disappointment? Emmaus is not a destination, as we've already noted. The church should be unafraid to go out on the road to listen to the conversations that people who are on the road to Emmaus are having and are sad. The church should walk at their pace, not falling behind, not going on ahead of them, but remaining close. It should listen sympathetically to the disappointments that they carry in their hearts and, and give, them the, the, give them the space to articulate them. But the church needs to do more than listening. It needs to know how to interpret with courage the big picture. It needs to know the scriptures well enough to open them up to the people and show them where their true hope lies. It needs to know how the scriptures point to the crucified and risen Christ whom these two disciples recognized in the proclamation of Moses and the prophets and in the breaking of the bread. Thus their eyes were opened and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. We should make a parenthetical remark about the resurrection appearances of Jesus. It's clear that the accounts intend to present these appearances more as more or different than a vision or an apparition. And yet it is also clear that Jesus is no longer present in in his resurrection body in the same way as he was in his ordinary body, as a body as we know it. He walked through locked doors, and here he is disguised as a stranger on the road to Emmaus and vanishes from sight after the disciples recognize him in the breaking of the bread. So what's going on here? How are we supposed to understand these appearances? 
One answer is that in the glorified state, man does not have the same limitations as he has now. Is this what we're supposed to understand in these appearances as the New Testament authors have given them to us? Some theologians, in reflecting on on these counts, use this word transitional, by which they mean Jesus is with his disciples in these 40 days, in these post-resurrection appearances, temporarily. But he he doesn't belong to this age. He belongs to the one to come. He waits for us there, or rather we are waiting for him to come to make all things new so that when he appears, we shall be made like him. So they call these appearances transitional because Jesus is our future. He has gone ahead to prepare a place for us, and he will come for us from there. And that is our hope, a hope that the Easter event makes possible and that we proclaim and celebrate whenever we come together for worship. As a result of the recognition of the risen Christ in the proclamation of the scriptures and in the breaking of the bread. Notice what happens to these two disciples. They have new clarity. They have new direction. They have renewed conviction. Are you getting it? Yes, they get it. It's significant that they return to Jerusalem. We need to be a church that helps people return to Jerusalem, of which they will hear glorious and joyful things, where they will learn that they are not orphans in the world, but children of the Jerusalem that is from above, who was our mother, according to the Apostle Paul in Galatians. In this figurative sense, Jerusalem is a point of destination, but it's also a point of departure, because beginning there, together with the with the other disciples, these two will be Jesus' witness, witnesses, and then in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this is what we need to be as a church. So let's then go out and witness to Jesus, to our contemporaries, on the roads that are leading nowhere for them. Amen. So we have a few moments to uh, take any questions or comments that uh, that you may have. Verse 16, this always puzzled me. Verse 16 says their eyes were restrained. And I always thought that that was the Lord that had restrained their eyes. But then when you get to verse 31, it says after they believed, then their eyes were opened. So I'm wondering what the commentators or what your thoughts are on that. Is it their unbelief that restrained their eyes? That seems to be what I would... I think this is... I was thinking about this um, after I after I had the sermon more or less done because it does seem that this is a theme in Luke, right? I was thinking about that text where um, the rich man and Lazarus um, die and Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham and rich man goes to hell and he says go back and tell my brothers I have the scriptures let let them read them so that they don't end up where you are no someone must come from here to go there then they'll believe 
And he says, if they don't believe the scriptures, they won't even believe if someone comes to them from the dead. So that does seem to be a that does seem to be a theme, and I, I think that this I think that this plays out here too, because Jesus is there, he's present before them, but they don't see him. He seems to be accessible only through the scripture and through the sacrament. Right? This is our access to Jesus. If we don't believe what the scriptures say about him, then we can't see. So it may be entirely possible. Although I don't know if the text gives us warrant to say that they willfully disbelieved. I think they're confused. Um, they had misplaced expectations. Um, but yeah, I, 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 can, I, uh, I appreciate the, the comment. Um, one commentator I read said that because they had this conception of Jesus this Jesus who should not have been crucified, who should have demonstrated his power in Jerusalem and brought salvation as they conceived it, that prevented them from seeing who Jesus says he really presents himself to be, uh, the suffering Messiah who has to undergo suffering and then rise from the dead. Um, and that's interesting because, I mean, that's psychologically, I think, often the case. If we look at something and we know what we see and we don't let it present itself to us. We, we miss. We miss what it is. I mean, I don't know. In Jesus' own words of rebuke, says, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart. So I think of what you said. It's not that they disbelieved. They were slow of heart. And it wasn't until he opened the scriptures, starting with Moses and the prophets, like you just said, it's the scriptures that convinced them, not Jesus' own presence. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, those are words of rebuke. Yeah, I mean, interesting you point those out because it's easy to gloss over those because there's so much going on in this text, but those are, those are harsh words. Anyone else? Um, verse, I think it's 28, and they drew nigh unto the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone farther. He was testing them, do you? Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting phrase, too. Um, yeah, weren't, uh, they, you know, I point out they long, they, they long for his presence um, after he, after he uh, opened the scriptures uh, to them. Didn't want him to go. Well, if there are no other comments or questions... Um, Let's stand to hear or to receive the Lord's parting benediction. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace.